Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast and joining me as usual, our co-host and fellow lifelong H-Town sports junkie, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, we've somehow made it another week without any of the major sports getting shut down. Victories in 2020, they're sometimes very, very small. (laughs) (laughs) But you'll take them where you can get them, Robert, no matter how small they are. And that is a victory. So, uh, yep, I'm happy about that. I was, you know, it's been another long week. And uh, Sunday was the day that I wanted to just chill. You know, I went to church. I came home and I I wanted to watch the Astros and the Rockets win. I wanted to have some fajitas, some some ice cream. Well, all those things happened, Robert. Well, except for the one negative, which I know we'll get to later. But the positive is the Rockets won again. Yeah, let's start with uh, the Houston team that had the best week, the Rockets. They took two of three, beating the Lakers and Kings, although neither team appeared interested in putting up a fight. I'm talking about the Lakers and the Kings. But, Stephen, as we zero in on the playoffs, you have to believe the worst first-round matchup would be the Thunder. The Nuggets have more talent maybe than the Thunder, but OKC has played like one of the best teams in the NBA over the last few months. Check this out. Since Thanksgiving... Oklahoma City has the third best record in the NBA. Only the Lakers and Bucks are better. Yeah, and the Lakers and Bucks are struggling. So, yeah, Oklahoma City, you know, they could very well be the team that that sneaks up on people. The Rockets have had trouble with the Thunder, and of course, you know, Chris Paul wants to get back at his former team, so there is that. You know, and and the Rockets as you know, they still play in spurts where they're they're still trying to figure it out, but at least they seem to do better against the teams that are more the elite than they do the lower teams. Now, they did beat the Kings, but, boy, that first quarter was definitely, in my mind, the worst quarter that the Rockets had since the bubble started. But they got it together. They came back when they needed to. And, you know, there are definitely a number of positives that the Rockets can take into the postseason that that I think will give them confidence and probably should give us confidence, Robert, that maybe they can overcome some of these things and beat teams like the Thunder. Yeah, let me just start off with those positives. You got Ben McLemore shooting 51% from three in the bubble. Austin Rivers is shooting 40.7% from three. Jeff Green, 37.1%. Daniel House is shooting 36.4%. And I'm also loving the way he's playing on both ends of the floor. Defensively, we're starting to see the Daniel House that I thought could be that 3 and D player. And if the Rockets could just play some defense, and you said this, early in games it's not just one or two games now that they're having problems and that they could get Westbrook and Gordon back on the court which should be happening soon I'd be ecstatic about their momentum going into the playoffs yes absolutely and then there's another key positive too Robert that that since the bubble started and that is turnovers I believe the Rockets are, are definitely among the top in turnover percentage which you know especially when you're getting into the postseason those turnovers are crucial and they cause the Kings you know the the Rockets had a number of steals, and uh, the Kings had a lot of turnovers, but the Rockets have been keeping their turnovers down, which to me is is a major thing. Maybe it hadn't been talked about very much, but that along with the defense, you know, up, uh, before Sunday's game, I believe they were sixth in defense, you know, per 100 possessions. So that is a huge improvement. If they can just improve on the, those slow starts in the first quarter, I mean, you get behind against a team like Oklahoma City, for instance, in the playoffs, that's going to be a much harder mountain to climb than teams like, you know, the the Sacramento Kings or somebody like that. They're just getting their hands on some basketballs more than we saw before 
the break. That's the one positive with their defense that I've seen. I, I'm not sure I'm seeing a lot of things that I, I'm loving about the defense overall, at least early in games. They, they, they pick it up. They become like a fourth quarter, you know, second half defense. But early in games, it's just. But at least they're getting their hands on on basketballs. And and one thing, Stephen, that uh, Matt Bullard said in the broadcast, and uh, you know, this is just flat out wrong. He 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 kept saying that I don't want to hear about James Harden not playing defense because he's going to lead the league in steals. And one thing we know, Stephen, about steals, not a good indicator of defense. Allen Iverson says, oh, yeah, then I'm a great defender, too, because I led the league in steals three times. Well, steals is fine, but you still have to prevent the other team from scoring on the other opportunities. And I will say this, you know, Harden is at least showing some spurts. And, you know, what were we saying a few minutes ago, Robert, we'll take any victory we can get. Well, <laughs> when, it, when it comes to James Harden's defense, I'll take just about anything, I- any kind of improvement is improvement. And I do think that the Rockets do appear to be Hustling after the ball, you know, the, the biggest thing that they're going to face is the rebounding, you know, and being out-rebounded with that small lineup. But at least as of now, it, it doesn't seem to be a major problem. It's just going to be interesting to see in that regard when the postseason does arrive. Yeah, James Harden, I, I keep hearing about, oh, there's it's going to be a different James Harden, and he was watching the last dance, and he's in better shape. And look, if you're in better shape, I need to see constant effort. There's still those times, I'm still seeing it, Stephen, where the ball goes up at the basket on the defensive end of the floor, and James just kind of stands there. He doesn't block anybody out. He doesn't go towards the rebound. He just stands there. And There's also the the, the one thing that just drives me up the wall. James is going to get doubled almost all the time out top. That, that That has become the given with the Rockets' offense. So when he gets doubled, what I don't like to see is those lazy behind-the-back passes out of the double team where instead, if he would just you know rise up and make a good, firm, two-handed pass, the guy that's doubling off of him is the guy up top, and you get a wide-open guy at the top of the key or you know at the elbow three for an easy opportunity. But what happens with James is by the time you, the ball gets to that guy – with this lazy pass, then it allows the double teams to, you know, come back over and, 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 and basically get back into the play. I don't know, you know, at this point in James's career, I just don't know. Is it a motivation factor? Is it just a lapse of concentration? I, I you know, he's played for several coaches since he's been with the Rockets and, and no one has seemed to be able to, to motivate him fully to just go all out on both ends of the floor, you know, at all times. I mean, no one can do it maybe, a hundred times out of a hundred, but in James Harden's case, I mean, this is just a recurring problem. So I, I you know, I, I'm just at a loss, Robert, and I'm sure you are too, to try to figure out, I guess the only person who knows the answer is James Harden himself. I don't know about you. I'm just tired of hearing, Oh, this is a different James Harden, or he's doing, he's going to do this differently, or he's going to do that. And he's motivated and he's this and he's that I, I've got to see it on the floor. I mean, I, I know he's going to put up numbers when you got the ball in your hands all the time, when you're shooting as much as he does, uh, when you're as talented as he is, frankly, when you're as talented as he is, obviously you're going to get some baskets. He he knows how to draw fouls. He knows how to get to the line. Uh, he can make threes. Uh, he can make some difficult contested threes, but I just got to see it uh, on, a, on a consistent basis where 
he's correcting these just little things and these little things, as we know, when the playoffs come around, that they count. Well, and I think, Robert, you, you just hit on something. It gave me a thought. This could be why, you know, it's a league-wide thing. You know, uh, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and James Harden were named as finalists for the MVP. Well, do, I, I certainly do, I, I don't see James Harden winning it. I just don't. And, and that could be one of the reasons. that I just feel like a lot of people probably feel the same way you do. They see flaws in his game that are consistent year after year after year, and at least for this season— he may be a finalist, but I don't see him winning the Most Valuable Player Award, you know, based on some of the things that you just talked about. Yes, he does put up the numbers, and he he does have those flashes, but again, this isn't the James Harden that is going to be an MVP winner year after year after year, and it could be for those things you just mentioned. Yeah, if people don't know, that they voted, uh, they can vote basically on the rest of the season. They've taken out the bubble stuff for voting on all of the awards. Do you know that, Stevens? Right, right. So yeah, it's for James Harden. Uh, the the votes were already cast, and you know, with Giannis and LeBron with the best two records in the NBA, they're going to win the award. One of those two guys, I would assume Giannis, because he did have the better record going into the uh, into the hiatus and before the bubble. So uh, keep that in mind. There's just three games left before the playoffs. By the way, the Spurs, Pacers. And Sixers, Spurs, no LaMarcus Aldridge. Sixers have lost Ben Simmons for the season. So that should help in those two. But watch out for the Pacers, Stephen, because they not only have Oladipo back, but T.J. Warren. T.J. Warren. Let me repeat that. T.J. Warren is averaging 34.8 points per game in the bubble. They're quietly becoming a dangerous team out east. Well, you know, that's right. And, uh, you know, with the, the Bucks struggling and, and things of that nature, I mean, it's going to be interesting with the postseason to see teams like the Pacers and, and the Thunder, like you were just talking about. You know, who's going to step up and be that team that you're going to be afraid of if you're going up against them? And the Pacers are one of them. You know, the, the Spurs, you know, they've had a tough season, but they're still fighting for playoff spots. So that might be still a bit of a dangerous game. So, yeah, the the Pacers game, though, is the one that I would be worried about. But, hey, the Rockets are 4-1 and one in the bubble, three games left. So you know they're going to be at least 4-3 and three at, at the uh, at the worst, you know, 4-4. Four and four. But I don't see that happening, Robert. I just I, – I think the Rockets, they're, they're building that confidence. And, yeah, they're going to stumble a bit in, in the first quarter. You just hope they don't lose a game that they shouldn't lose heading into the postseason – and just break that momentum. Before we leave Rockets conversation, we got to ask you guys out there listening a question and give you a potential heads up on something. Steve and I are looking at potentially having a Zoom party happy hour prior to the Rockets' first playoff game next week. If not the first one, maybe one of the Rockets' playoff games uh, when they get going with that. And anybody who'd like to ask us questions or just say hello via Zoom would get a chance to do so. But we need your feedback if you'd be interested, the way it'd work would be we'd put up a Zoom link on Twitter and, and Facebook early next week with the day and time. Like I said, we think it probably would be for the Rockets playoff opener. We're also trying to line something up with another podcast host who's been a guest on our show a couple of times. But keep in mind, though, got to get your feedback. Are you interested? Let us know through our usual channels, Twitter, Facebook, email, etc. Steven, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's the perfect way for us to to reach out to people. We, we need we need some feedback. Like, are you interested out there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I look at this as it's it's like you said, it's a pregame party. It's, it's like a virtual happy hour where you would gather 
you know, at a sports bar or somewhere to watch the game. Well, if you can't do that, you can do it from home. You can grab your favorite beverage, your favorite snack, kick your feet up in your, your easy chair, wherever you like to be, and just talk with us. You know, we, we, like, we can just talk back and forth. We can get into some debates. I mean, there are all kinds of things we can do with it. And just have fun and celebrate the fact that, we, the, that there is a sport that has a postseason and the Houston team's involved with all the things that have been going on this year. Man, I, I don't know about you, Robert, but I'm definitely looking forward to a postseason of any sort coming up here real soon. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, the problem is with the Rockets, you got a potential postseason with the Astros. We're not so sure anymore, but I, I, I do want to go kind of glass half full on this because let's be honest about it. The legitimacy of a championship this year in baseball, considering a 60-game season, COVID absences and opt-outs, and a severely watered-down 16-team playoff, it's got to be seriously in doubt. Almost from the start, I felt like this year was about setting up next year. I've gone from seriously concerned about the starting pitching without Garrett Cole and supposedly depleted, you know, this supposedly depleted minor league system that the Astros have to seriously fired up about the future Steven and the league, look at this. The league is hitting 171 off Brandon Belak, 235 off Framber Valdez, and 179 off Christian Javier, despite, you know, poor performance on Sunday, but still 179 off Christian Javier. We thought the future, Steven, was Forrest Whitley, Josh James, and Brian Abreu. Maybe still a part of that future, but this looks like these three guys look like the real future. It's certainly wide open right now, Robert. And I'll tell you what, can you imagine? what things would be like if these guys hadn't been coming through for the Astros. Uh, you know, typically every year in a full season, you're going to have one, maybe two players, whether they be a journeyman pitcher or player or a young guy who steps up. Well, in the Astros case, there are multiple ones, and you just mentioned them. So, And, and the ones that we kept talking about in the conversation consistently, who we thought might be in there, you know, they're not. Josh James is back in the bullpen. Forrest Whitley hadn't even been up with a big club. Brian Abreu was was just reassigned to the, the other facility in Corpus. So it, it is good to see. And you just hope that they can keep it up throughout the season because if, if, a, if there's a team that needs positives right now, it's the Astros. One thing about these young starters getting their careers started this year, and this is my little theory I have. If you think about it, they really couldn't have made it through a whole year because of innings limits. So maybe this is like a mini ramp up for them. They'd still need an innings, you know, they'd still need that innings limit next year, but this could be better for their arm long-term considering the major stress that's involved with major league innings as opposed to minor league innings. Well, that's a great point. I, I must admit, I hadn't thought about that, but that's certainly something to consider is, you know, they, they won't be pitching as much. Of course, you know, you look around the league, and then certainly it's been the case with the Astros and a number of pitchers, established pitchers like Justin Verlander, Roberto Osuna, and and uh, Chris Davinsky have had injury issues. But these young guys have come up here and at least, you know, knock on wood here, uh, have remained healthy. You just hope they can keep it up. But that that's a great point, Robert, that uh, maybe that is a factor, along with the fact that, yes, there is pressure because they are in the, they're in the show – but they don't have the fans screaming and yelling against them or for them even. Uh, it's, it, it's more like a minor league atmosphere. And the fact that you have so many of them on the team, it kind of has that spring training feel almost. So you put all those factors together, and that could be a reason or, or multiple reasons why these guys are coming through. Either way, we're loving it. 
I'm also excited about Anole Paredes and Blake Taylor out of the bullpen, and I'm starting to become a little bit intrigued, Stephen, by Andre Scrub. Frankly, the one thing about Scrub that scares you is his name. <laughs> it's just he's like just, Scrub, but, but the numbers are rock not solid. He's a Scrub for sure, is he? Um, you know, and, and I think that because there certainly wasn't anything expected of him. And I think, you know, in, in cases like him – that has so little minor league experience. You you just don't think that a guy like that is going to come up here and be able to thrive in a situation like that. But yeah, wow, Andre Scrub. I mean, who would have thought? But again, the Astros need all the help they can get from these young guys. And he's another one that he could be in the conversation if he can still re- remain consistent throughout the rest of the season. Those were my positives. Is there anything that I'm missing? I mean, I'm trying to Go glass half full with everybody before I get to the other stuff. But anything I'm missing from uh, the last week or just the season in general? Well, I think that, you know, even when, you know, we talked about this on the podcast last week is Jose Altuve and his struggles. I I just think a player like Altuve, he's going to get it together. George Springer, yeah, he's out with an injury and and this sort of thing. And he's not been hitting. But I, I guess if I look at it this way, Robert, is that if the Astros peak, when they need to peak, as, as short a season as it is, it could be the right time where they can just get some things going. You know, they had a miserable road trip, but there's still, you know, some good field in front of them. So I just think that if the pitching can remain with these young guys, if they can just continue to come through, the offense is going to come around. I mean, I just think, yeah, there are some holes, but the Astros offense is too good to be this down for this long. So I'm looking at it as, yeah, the the glass half full thing like you are, Robert, is there is still some season left. If the Astros can get it together and peak at the right time, they can go into the postseason on a high. Offense might be helped a little bit if uh, there's a little guy down south in Corpus Christi that's taking some swings, and we're starting to see that UFO grainy video coming out. Of it. He's he's get, hitting home runs and, and practice game or whatever they call it. Uh, uh, what do they call those games now? The I forgot, but yeah, he's he's hitting some home runs down there. All they're doing is scrimmaging down there, just intra squad type things. But of course, we're talking about Jordan Alvarez, and oh my goodness, if we could just get him back in the lineup, uh, what changes that would be if he can even come close to what he was doing last year? You know, it's a lot to ask for for such a young guy. But in Alvarez's case, he certainly could do that. So, yeah, the arrival of Jordan Alvarez and Jose Arquiti, whenever he's ready, those would be a couple more positives you could take into the rest of the Astros season. Simulated. That was the word that was escaping. Simulated games. Well, that's true. Yeah, they are doing a lot of simulated games. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, One thing you talk about Arquiti and Alvarez and all these guys, it's almost like you got the injured list this year. When you get there, you disappear into this black hole. Osuna is done. Austin Pruitt is done. Verlander may be done. Uh, Peacock finally throwing. But, Stephen, remember when there used to be timetables for when guys return? Like, hey, he's going to be back in two weeks or three weeks or I don't know. This century. Like, what what happened? What happened to when? Hey, the guy's on the injured. When is he coming back? Yeah, that is the unknown, and and especially when you have such a shortened season, it's, it's just even harder to tell because even if they do come back at the end of the season, are they going to be ready for the playoffs? You know, that's the other big question you have. Yeah, but my thing is not just the fact that we don't know when they're coming back. Do you remember? Do you ever remember a time where there was like 14 guys that are out and, and or just how about 
six guys that are out or eight guys, whatever it is. Do you ever remember a time where, you know, hey, when did they, when's this guy coming back? Well, I don't know. We don't know. We, we have no time. To, we don't know if it's, you know, they're, they're not giving us, oh, it's five days. It's two weeks. It's three weeks. It's a month. There's there, no timetable on anybody, Stephen, on nobody. Like, how long is George Springer going to be back? Well, I don't know. He could be day-to-day. Could be a couple of weeks. I don't, Justin Verlander could be gone for the year. Could be gone two weeks. Uh, you know, is, this is with everybody. But I don't care who it is. Uh, you know, Austin Pruitt, who knows? Like, we finally got sort of, oh, he, he's going to be gone for a while. Uh, he, he might be done. But for, for weeks, we were like, just... Well, like, well, how long is it? When's he coming back? When's the timetable? There is no timetables. Well, I don't know if it's the whole COVID thing that's doing this, because, you know, I think I mentioned before is why don't they just do it across the board? You know, if you're not going to say anything, if, if mom is the word regarding whether you have COVID-19 or not, why not just do it all the way across the board with other injuries or, or just come out with all of it? I, I guess that's where I'm looking at it is, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they're just deciding, well, you know, we're having to do this with COVID. Why don't we just do it all the way through with injuries and just keep everybody in suspense? The problem, though, is when you do that, it just leaves more room for speculation. If you don't want all the speculation, then at least come out and say something. If you don't care about it, well, then I guess just keep doing what you're doing. That That's the only thought that I have on that, Robert. What does COVID have to do with Austin Pruitt? Well, it doesn't. What, what I'm saying is that they're, if they're going to be mum about that, I guess they're figuring let's just be mum about all the rest of the injuries going on. But, you know, again, it's just people are going to, like you and me, are going to speculate. Well, when's he coming back? Does he have, you know, the whole Furlander thing is a great example. Does he have an elbow injury that's going to keep him out for the season? Or, or is it just a forearm injury that he's going to come back two, or, you know, two to four weeks? They, they just are reluctant to say anything about all of these things. I guess this is what the dark net is for. <laughs> the, dark, the dark web. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the black market thing. You just go and make your own assumptions. Well, nobody in baseball is averaging more runners left in scoring position this year than the Astros. They're easily dead last in that category. They're ranked 20th in hitting for average with runners in scoring position. Where has the clutch Astros gone? Is this, you know, is this going to be the conversation now? Well, look, the Astros are not getting signs anymore, so they can't hit when it when when they don't know what's coming. Well, that's certainly true. You know, every little thing that happens, it's all going to point back to the sign-stealing scandal. And again, I say, you know, this is something that you get when you get caught doing something you shouldn't do. And as as bad as that is, uh, this is something that a lot of teams, the Astros have a target on their back, and a lot of teams are going to come at them in a whole lot of different ways. Like the fight we saw on Sunday. Who knows if that was motivated by anything regarding the cheating. But nonetheless, the Astros are going to deal with that more than most teams. And any questions, you know, coming back, you know, why is Altuve struggling? Uh, Springer, why was he struggling before he got hurt? Correa hasn't seemed to have any problems. He's probably the best hitter on the team right now. Him and Brantley, of course, is seem to be picking up. But the runners in scoring position thing, yeah, that's a, that's a huge issue. And uh, they need to get that together fast, too, or it's going to continue to be a long season. One thing that I've noticed about Correa, and I, I think everybody's kind of picking up on this, is he... Took him four years, but he finally figured out early in counts, swing the bat. Those are the pitches that you can hit. So that's that's good for Correa. One disappointment for me, a big disappointment, has been Miles Straw. And yes, I know the sample size is small, but let's go through it so far. Outfield defense, atrocious. Uh, he should have backed up Springer on the inside the park home run. 
That was his only job on that play. He also let a ball bounce over his head in Oakland. Uh, His offense, non-existent, especially in clutch situations. Speaking of the clutch situations, outside of his base running, Stephen, which we knew about, I'm just not happy. I miss Jake Day. I miss Jake Day. Yeah, Miles Straw is definitely no Jake Marisnik. There's no doubt about that. Um, and again, I don't know if it's the sample size, but he's even there. There have been a couple other balls I noticed that he caught them, but he looked kind of awkward when he was catching them, like he, he had to come back on one or go in on one. So, yeah, his fielding definitely needs some work, and that's you know going to be kind of a recurring problem. You know, the Astros don't have a lot of depth in the outfield. If you lose Reddick and you lose Springer. What are you going to do in the outfield? I mean, Alvarez has trouble with the outfield. Miles Straw does too. Uh, so, you know, that that is a definite problem that you have to think about, not just now, but down the road, if the Astros are going to lose some guys at the end of the season. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, I want to see Kyle Tucker play. I want to see what he's got. I just am very underwhelmed by Kyle Tucker. What about you? One of the things I was disappointed about, and we talked about the some of the moves that uh, Dusty Baker has made, I'm not sure I would have put Kyle Tucker in the leadoff spot. I, I would have. I know Altuve's been struggling, but look, he's experienced. He's led off before. They they did put him in the leadoff spot on Sunday, but yeah, Kyle Tucker. I mean, he's been making some good contact with the ball, but you talked about this last week on the podcast, Robert. He's he's made some fundamental mistakes at the plate that definitely need to be cleared up. So I definitely don't understand why Dusty Baker had him in the leadoff spot to begin with. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that one stumped me, especially because he, he's not somebody that looks like he has the eye to draw walks. I mean, that's what you want in a leadoff spot, an on-base guy, and that's not Kyle Tucker. No, that's not. Now, if, when he does get on base, he's probably one of the smartest base runners on the team. He may not have the mile straw speed, but he's very good at, at base running. But you got to get on base first, and, and the walks are a big thing. That's that's one of the things a good a good leadoff guy does, you know, and and that's what makes Springer so effective when he's on. He can draw walks, he can hit homers, he he can get on base any number of ways, and that's something that Kyle Tucker certainly hasn't figured out. So he definitely doesn't need to go batting leadoff. I hope Dusty's learned his lesson from that. What did you think about bringing in Josh James after? I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody had a really good start, and you're you're thinking, okay, Astros could win this game. They, they just need to hold him from here on out. It's the seventh inning. And Josh James had just been moved to the bullpen. He looked bad as a starter, and I get it. There's a bunch of young kids in the bullpen. You're, you're choosing from a bunch of babies out there. But, and babies, but I, I mean young guys. But, <laughs> I mean, to, we're going with Josh James instead of Scrub, who I thought had been pitching pretty well, instead of Anoli Paredes, who'd, who'd showed flashes, instead of uh, – you know, the lefty, uh, I mean, you, you had a bunch of choices to go to and Dusty goes, eh, let's go with Josh James right here. We, we, everything, that's the guy that I had the least confidence out of the bullpen outside of maybe Cy Reed, who also got, uh, shelled at, at, at his shot, uh, late, late in, a, in an extra inning game. Yeah, it's, it is puzzling. And Josh James is still trying to figure it out. You know, I don't know if it's, it's his confidence is shaken because he did so poorly as a starter. I've always felt that Josh James is probably a better out-of-the-bullpen pitcher anyway. Uh, you know, that that's what I've always kind of felt. But, you know, there's a guy that's still trying to figure things out, unfortunately, and the Astros really need him. He was one of the ones we talked about at the beginning of the season. They really needed him to come through. So I just hope he can figure it out, whether it's in the bullpen or in the starting rotation. Yeah, Dusty makes me scratch my head 
a bunch. And and just here's a crazy stat. I don't know if this has anything to do with Dusty. I think it more has to do with the Astros pitching staff and, and where it's at right now. But in 324 regular season games from 2018 to 2019, over the last couple of seasons, the Astros pitching staff intentionally walked only four batters, not including postseason games. In the first 11 games this year, uh, which is, I, I can't remember how many they're at right now, but in the first, just in the first 11 games, they intentionally walked four guys already. So at matching that total. Well, I think a lot of that, that was an AJ Hinch thing. He he did not like the intentional walk thing, apparently, because he hardly used it. So I, I'm thinking that's more of a managerial thing with Dusty is why you're seeing more of that. Also, uh, you got to look at this uh, playoff because you think, oh, the Astros, they're six and nine. It's bad. You know, let's forget about it. But the watered down major league baseball playoff system and the Astros, as we speak, just a half game out of second in the West. And that's, that's the bar for the playoffs. <laughs> well, that's, that's basically a par for the AL West. Cause it continues to be a weak division, but the, <laughs> you know, but, but that is it, Robert. And that's the key. I mean, the Astros would have to go into a real tailspin like what they're doing now and just keep it up for them not to make the playoffs. And that's why I say, if they could just, peak at the right time and get it going, they could still win the division. I mean, as crazy as that sounds, they could still win the division and they certainly can be in the playoffs and go very deep into the playoffs once they get there. I I didn't say anything about the, the brawl on Sunday. Did you have any comments on that? What Ramon Liriano, former Astro farmhand. yeah. Yeah. Another former Astro coming back to, you know, Kick, kick the team in the teeth, I guess. I, that was the first thing I thought of. The second thing I thought of is, I, okay, I understand he was hit earlier in the game. What was it, in the fifth inning? But how do you justify thinking that a, a young pitcher, you know, like Roberto Castellanos, who just got into the major leagues, you've got a 3-2 count on the hitter with runners on base. You're going to hit a guy intentionally? I, I just didn't understand where all that came from. Now, I know Alex Centrone kind of baited him a bit and made him come after him, but... Yeah, that, the way that whole thing started, I, I just I couldn't figure it out unless he was just looking for a fight. But look, you're up six to two. You're about to sweep the team. What is the need for all of it? That that was just the thing that puzzled me about the fight on Sunday. This is a guy that hadn't even got past double A. Does he know where the ball's going? He wasn't in spring training for the Astros. I mean, come on. <laughs> just like- yeah, I you know Ramon Laureano. I I guess he just. I guess he was just looking for a reason to taunt a young guy. Of course, he's not all that. He's not a huge veteran himself. He's only been in the league a few years. But yeah, it's like he was trying to give him a pitching clinic as to where to throw the ball. Well, come on, you have a three-two count. You're not going to hit a guy. If you are, you're an idiot, and you don't deserve to be in the major leagues. I, I just don't think. Certainly, don't think that's what Castellanos was trying to do. The Astros need wins. I I, I don't know why being down 6-2, and you still got a chance. I mean, it didn't seem like they had much of a chance the way the offense has been the last few days, but they still had a chance, and you're you're trying to go after the first-place team in the West. Why are you wanting to put a guy on base at the start? In any, I don't I, – just there's nothing about it that made sense, but, you know, the national narrative is going to be, well, there's the Astros. They're trying to get back at the team that squealed on them and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it's interesting that it is another former Astro who did this, so I don't know if that motivated anything. But again, these guys have a target on their back, and and rightly or wrongly, this is what they're going to have to deal with for the rest of the season and probably even beyond that. It'll be interesting next year if you do get fans in the stands. Since a lot of time has gone by by then, 
you know, are there still going to be fans out there? Are they going to give it to them? I, I certainly think so. This isn't something that's going to go away anytime soon, Robert, like it or not. Big picture on baseball. The one thing that just, I'm like, what do you get? What do you do here? The St. Louis Cardinals, Steve, I don't know if you noticed this. They played five games so far. <laughs> that's it. That's what I think is so unfair about this, Robert, is how do you justify having a team that's only played five games? You have the Astros who have played, uh, as of the time we're recording this, what, 15 games? And, you right. know, the Marlins have played fewer games. How do you have a season where, you know, I know that's a 16-team playoff, but let's face it, there are going to be teams who are not going to make the playoffs, and they're going to be just barely not making the playoffs. I, You know, again, I think it just boils down to leadership and, or lack thereof in the case of Major League Baseball. I, I just don't know how you can continue this, but Rob Manford seems to be digging his heels in and it stubbornly refuses to cancel the season. So I don't know. It, it's a puzzle to me how we're going to be able to finish this. And if you do, you talk about putting an asterisk by a season. Well, MLB is going to have to. I'm sorry. Even if the Astros do win the World Series, if, if this continues, you're going to have to put multiple asterisks by this season when you have teams like the Cardinals and the Marlins. And then think about the other teams that's affecting too because those series are having to be canceled. It's not just those teams. It's the teams that you were going to play in those series. Speaking of the virus, uh, you, you've got some thoughts on that, but I, I do want to say that you know, Houston Cougars football coaching legend Bill Yeoman survived a month-long battle with COVID. Steven, he was in the hospital, but we heard a few days ago that the 92-year-old Yeoman veered out of the hospital and is back at home. Did you get what I did there? I see what you did there. The you know, of course, the the creator, the the mastermind anyway behind the Veer offense. Uh, you can see his video on YouTube. I'm sure they have it up there. What the Veer offense looked like if you didn't follow the team back then, you know. But Bill Yeoman, what a great story, uh, certainly. Because when I first found out he had it, you know, that was my first thought. My goodness, he's in his early 90s. Is he going to survive it? And you know, I, I have actually heard stories. I, I think I saw not a sports related guy. A guy who was, or no, it was a lady. I think she was 100 years old, and she survived it. So, yeah, it's great to see Bill Yeoman, who who did survive the virus, and what a great guy, and had some great Cougars teams back in the, the 60s and 70s. When they entered the Southwest Conference, a lot of people may not remember, the Cougars won the Southwest Conference their very first year in the league. They went to the Cotton Bowl, and they beat Maryland, so... You know, Bill Yeoman was the coach of that team. Nobody expected, you know, this is when uh, Texas and Texas A&M and Arkansas and, you know, these guys were, were the powerhouses of the conference. Here comes this independent little team from the University of Houston in 1976, I believe it was, their first year, and wins the conference. So Bill Yeoman, one, definitely one of the greatest coaches that the Cougars have ever had in football. And that's one of the reasons why. So I'm very glad he survived that. You're talking about the old Southwest Athletic Conference, the SWAC, uh, or the no wait, the South was it the Southwest? The, the regular Conference. Southwest Conference, the, the Southwest Conference. I'm sorry, this, I, I was trying to make a transition and I screwed it up because I was thinking <laughs> SWAC to the MAC, but the SWAC, the SWAC is the, the that's another conference. But the MAC is canceling fall football and moving it over to spring. Is that is that correct? That is correct. And yeah, the Mid American Conference is who you're talking about. May not be a Power Five conference, but it is a conference in college sports and. You know, it's a major thing when you have them. And don't forget, UConn has done the same thing. They've canceled all their fall sports. So here is the NCAA who decided last week 
well, why don't we just let the individual teams and conferences make that decision? Why can't you guys just come out and say there is fall sports or there's not fall sports? When the, when the coronavirus pandemic started in the spring, you didn't have any problem shutting down spring sports everywhere, stopping all of them in midseason. You know, I cover college softball and I was doing some, you know, college softball for, you know, the client that I have. I was doing a lot of college stories, stopped on, you know, basically screeching the brakes. Everything else, all the college sports were stopped. Why can't you just decide to either stop it or move ahead until further notice? But no, the NCAA has to just leave it up to everybody. So my question is, Robert, how is that going to work? If you have teams like the Mid-American Conference, you have UConn, you know, what if a major conference decides, even after they've already figured out, Mel, maybe we'll just play a conference schedule, but if players start getting tested positive, they decide to stop the whole season. How is that going to work? You kind of wonder, and I've wondered for a long time, when is the house of cards that is the NCAA going to fall fall down? And, and we're, we're getting closer to that time because we're seeing players putting pressure on the, on the NCAA and on these conferences, like in the Pac-10 or Pac-12, I guess it is, to you know shut, shut things down there or to change things. I mean, you're seeing players with more and more of a say of what's going on. We're seeing what's happening in college basketball where players are saying, you know what, I don't have to play NCAA basketball. I can go to the G League. I can go to Australia. I can do other things. And the players are also realizing, and I was wondering when this was going to happen because we've had social media now for over a decade and guys can start getting in touch with each other and saying, oh, well, let's let's do this and let's do that and, and start something to where there is a boycott or uh, we want this to happen or want that to happen. And we're seeing that in other places around life these days, around the world. And I was just, it's, it seemed like it was a matter of time before this happened at the NCA. And, and, and this house of cards that is the NCA without central leadership, like you mentioned, it, that's all about to fall down. I think you just hit on the answer, Robert, or the, the reason that you haven't maybe seen it up until recently is because there, there is more of an opportunity for players to, to kind of merge together and, and form this. You know, it happened at the University of Texas. Uh, some athletes came forward and said, these are some changes we want to make in regard to, uh, you know, addressing the problem of racism in the school. And guess what? UT made those changes, most of them anyway. So I, I think that the fact that there is social media – there, there are opportunities for players, even on different teams and different conferences, you know, throughout college sports that can just get together and say, hey, I feel the same way you do. Let's put pressure on these guys. But I think it, you know, what it, where it really needs to go is they need to start putting pressure on the NCAA as a whole, as well as on the conferences and the individual schools to just kind of make this a domino effect. And as you said, the house of cards may fall or Maybe these guys will finally wake up and realize we need to make these changes before those house of cards falls. All right. Now it's not who we play for, but we are going to do Steven, your least favorite game. <laughs> Who's Houston sports birthday. Is it? <laughs> okay. So we're not doing who. All right. Uh, yeah. It's uh who's Houston sports birthday. Is it? And since you're not good uh, it gives everyone listening a chance to play along, maybe feel smarter than Steven. Are you ready for this one? <laughs> uh, as ready as I'll ever be. Let's go for it. 
All right. This former Astros utility player turned 45 on Sunday, August the 9th, which is also my sister's birthday. So happy birthday, Vicky. And uh, he was 31st round draft pick out of the Minnesota Twins in 1996 out of Cal State Fullerton. Played third base and first base for a number of teams, including the Astros. The Astros traded Juan De Leon in 2004 to get him. And this is your big hint, Stephen. He's, he's going to go down in history as the first Astro to ever hit a home run in a World Series game. Who is this mystery man? Um, I'm going to guess Morgan Innsberg. No, utility player. That's your big hint. Oh, utility player. Oh, you, yeah, I missed the utility player part. Happy right. birthday, Mike Lamb. Oh, Mike Lamb. He was a utility because he did play some outfield too, did he not? Yeah, he played a little bit, but mostly... But, yeah, he's mostly infield, but I think he... Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was definitely... I do remember that World Series home run now. But I missed the utility player part, so okay. But that Mike Lamb, that's a great guess. That's a great one. And he's just the second player in baseball history whose last name is an animal to hit a World <laughs> Series home run. Tim Salmon. I'm sure you would have gotten that one with the other Salmon. one. Salmon. Oh, yeah, I remember the name now. If you, I, Yeah, that's, that's, a pretty, that's a good one. All right, this is a former Houston Rockets shooting guard who turns 59 tomorrow, August the 11th. Wow. The Lubbock, Texas native, was drafted out of Washington State in the third round back when there were three rounds. Actually, I think there were more than three back then. This is the 1983 draft. He played in just 88 games in three years in Houston. And unfortunately, despite a very solid 14-year NBA career, he's mostly remembered for one single play as a defender that play was immortalized yet one more time a couple of months ago in espn's documentary the last dance you got an idea on this one i'm gonna guess craig elo there you go happy birthday 59 years old craig elo wow i'd forgotten when he's been drafted when he was drafted but yeah that, that's right it was in the 83 wasn't it yeah currently doing analysis on washington state games and for those who don't remember in that game remembered for michael jordan's shot right Elo led the Cavs in scoring that night with 24 points and had just hit the go-ahead shot with six seconds left so he, he played a pretty darn good game he did indeed um I guess you know any way you can get your name on the map the people will remember you and I'm sure Craig would have preferred it be it for a different reason but he's yeah he's still remembered for that play all those years later yeah I, do, I remember Craig with with the Rockets for sure all right, the next one is a former Astro reliever who turns 54 today, Monday the, the 10th. Uh, this lefty was a fifth-round pick by the Orioles in 1985 out of Stanford. He played for the Astros from 1990 to 1993, so early 90s guy, accumulating 16-10 and 10 as his record at a 3.75 ERA in Houston. And if you don't know it yet, Stephen, your big hint is... He shares a last name with the Astros' closer the last two seasons. Osuna. Well, what was his name? I, I, can, I can picture him, but his first name escaped. You said he was a lefty reliever, right? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I mean, the hint definitely helped me out. Uh, but the first name is not coming to me. Happy 54th birthday, Alfonso Osuna. But you can call him Al, Al Osuna. Al, Al Osuna. I, you know, I vague. Yeah, I think I vaguely remember Al Osuna. Wow, that's that's a definite one. That wow. How about that, Al Osuna? Yeah, that's a tougher one. I had to go back a little bit in the memory banks for that one. For sure. 
This Oilers offensive lineman and former Texans assistant coach turned 59 yesterday, August the 9th. This 14-time Pro Bowl player was drafted ninth overall in 1983 out of USC and is considered one of the greatest linemen in NFL history. In 2007, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Stephen, you better know who this is by now. Did you say defensive lineman or offensive, or did you say? Offensive lineman. Hall of Fame, 2007. Mike Munchak. No, no, no. Oh, Bruce Matthews. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were they were drafted about the same time, so it's Bruce Matthews. Yeah, the the big thing with that is you got to remember you got to put USC because USC uh, and tech, yeah, an assistant coach. Yeah, also. Munchak was not a USC guy for sure. No, he was not. So yeah, happy birthday, Bruce Matthews turns fifty nine, and I'll never forget covering the Super Bowl for the CBS in Memphis when the Titans fell to the Rams, and in every press conference, every single one of them, Bruce would refer to the Titans as the Houston Tennessee franchise. <laughs> I remember that. And I have to admit, I was definitely cheering for the Rams in that game, Robert. I'm not ashamed to tell you. I was not wanting the Titans to win that game. Thank goodness they didn't. <laughs> but, yes, I do remember Bruce making that reference. I thought that was hilarious. Speaking of offensive linemen, today's Max Sharping's 24th birthday. I hope Max can be half of Bruce Matthews. I mean, if we get half of Bruce Matthews out of back shopping, I'm excited about Bruce. Well, and if you're looking for something positive, Robert, you know, whether in any sport, but especially the Texans, you know, at least at the beginning, as they're starting to do training camp, they actually should have all five of their starters back this year on the offensive line. Now, if they could just remain that way, that's the question. But maybe we'll start to see some consistency with the Texans offensive line. Yeah, and, and that's what you want. Uh, you got to have consistency to get consistency. And so, yeah, you're right about that. I've got one last birthday. This Astros outfielder turns 34 tomorrow. So 34 means it's recent. Uh, he won the national championship in high school where his team finished the season ranked first in both the National High School Baseball Coaches Association poll and the USA Today Super 25 baseball rankings. This former Houston Sports Talk podcast guest was a brief cult hero for the Strohs. And when he was a kid, he played in the Little League World Series. In 2015, he hit a home run against the Yankees in the first playoff win by the Astros in a decade. Who am I talking about? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, had to, I have to think about this one. Oh, I know. It's Kobe Rasmus, right? Kobe Rasmus turned 30. Four, or turns 34 on Tuesday this week. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he just I, I remember walking into the clubhouse with Colby, and you'd see he was always dressed the coolest. You know, he would, you know, he'd be wearing a cowboy hat or so. You know, just be like, like, is that Colby? Ra oh, that's Colby Rasmus wearing a cowboy hat. So he he was fun, super good guy. Probably not worth the price that Jeff Luno paid for him with that contract when he was in Houston, but. You know, he did some great things, and that, that Yankees home run, it gave him the lead early in that game, which they would never relinquish. Great pitching uh, performance by Dallas Keuchel. That game was basically the beginning of what we saw that Astros run the last few years. Well, you know, it's those big moments, and sometimes you, you keep thinking that a guy will, will take a moment like that and make something great out of it. You know, you think of somebody like Chris Burke, who – did the same thing in 2005, that big home run in the 18-inning game with the, the Braves. The same with Colby Rasmus. You know, they had high hopes for him after that. 
never really lived up to the billing following that. But as you said, a great guy and a great moment in Astros history. So happy birthday to Colby. Before we close things out for this one, just a reminder, we'd love your feedback. As always, uh, share us, uh, like us. Just If you just put a like on Facebook or you know, favorite or whatever on uh, Twitter, we'd love that. You can message us usual places, Twitter, Facebook, info at HoustonSportsTalk.net is our email address. It's up on every single every t- time I put out the description of the show. It's right there for you so you can't miss it. Stay healthy and safe, everybody. We'll talk to you again real soon. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.